Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, September 1st, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. The Dragon Eggs Powered by Diamonds. No, it's not a children's fairy tale. It is a cutting-edge type of nuclear battery that could give us super long-lasting power with very little waste. The extinct breed of singing dogs that has been rediscovered. A brief history of Kool-Aid and the drink's totally cool mascot. And new research into the effective use of bee venom for breast cancer treatment. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Expanding a little on a story on Kotke.org today, scientists at the University of Bristol have built a nuclear battery using diamonds and are using it to power their custom sensor pods that they call dragon eggs, which they use to monitor volcanic activity. These dragon eggs are meant to passively and remotely monitor volcanoes, which means they need to be powered for a very long time because scientists can't just go up to a volcano where the dragon egg sensors are dropped off by drone in order to perform maintenance on them. So the solution? Radioactive diamonds made by reformed nuclear waste. Quoting Wired, Conventional chemical or galvanic batteries like the lithium-ion cells in a smartphone or the alkaline batteries in a remote are great at putting out a lot of power for a short amount of time. A lithium-ion battery can only operate for a few hours without a recharge, and after a few years it will have lost a substantial fraction of its charge capacity. Nuclear batteries, or beta-voltaic cells, by comparison are all about producing tiny amounts of power for a long time. They don't put out enough juice to power a smartphone, but depending on the nuclear material they use, they can provide a steady drip of electricity to small devices for millennia, end quote. So instead of being used for something that requires a ton of power, like an electric vehicle, the scientists from Bristol envisioned that they would be used for devices similar to their dragon egg sensors, devices that are in locations inaccessible by humans or in small wearables and even pacemakers. Morgan Boardman, the CEO of Arkenlight, the company founded to commercialize the nuclear diamond battery, says he envisions people would be replacing the devices before the battery. So how does it work? Quoting again, Best known for its role in radiocarbon dating, which allows archaeologists to estimate the age of ancient artifacts, carbon-14 can provide a boost to nuclear batteries because it can function both as a radioactive source and a semiconductor. It also has a half-life of 5,700 years, which means a carbon-14 nuclear battery could, in principle, power an electric device for longer than humans have had written language. Tom Scott and his colleagues at Bristol grow artificial carbon-14 diamonds by bleeding methane into a hydrogen plasma in a special reactor. As the gases ionize, the methane breaks down and the carbon-14 collects on a substrate in the reactor and begins to grow in a diamond lattice. But rather than using this radioactive diamond in a conventional sandwich battery configuration where the nuclear source and semiconductor are discrete layers, Scott and his colleagues patented a method to infuse the carbon-14 directly into a vanilla lab-grown diamond that's similar to what would be found on a ring. The result is crystal diamond with a seamless structure which minimizes the distance the beta particles have to travel and maximizes the efficiency of the nuclear battery. Carbon-14 is naturally formed when cosmic rays strike nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere, but it's also produced as a byproduct in the graphite blocks that contain the control rods for a nuclear reactor. These blocks eventually end up as nuclear waste, 
And Boardman says there are nearly 100,000 tons of this irradiated graphite in the UK alone. The UK's Atomic Energy Authority recently recovered tritium, another radioactive isotope used in nuclear batteries, from 35 tons of irradiated graphite blocks. And the Arkenlight team is working with the agency to develop a similar process to recover carbon-14 from the graphite blocks. End quote. If they're able to do it, we could be looking at a near-infinite supply of raw materials for nuclear batteries, because just 100 pounds of carbon-14 is enough for millions of nuclear batteries. And removing the carbon-14 from the graphite blocks actually makes them safer because it downgrades them from high-level nuclear waste to low-level. The team from Bristol is not quite there yet, however, but with the attention they're attracting from potential funders, they might just get there. In the meantime, several other companies are working on similar endeavors, although mostly using tritium instead of carbon-14 diamonds. And as for the safety of radioactive batteries, the scientists say that they're perfectly safe. They're barely radioactive, and the walls of the battery are more than enough to stop emissions. And when the power runs out, it decays to a neutral state, leaving no nuclear waste. They're nowhere near as dangerous as gamma rays, although Arkenlight is working on that too, trying to develop gamma-voltaic cells which would soak up gamma rays in order to generate electricity. As Wired concludes, quote, If the nuclear battery was once a fringe technology, it seems poised to break into the mainstream. We don't necessarily need or want all of our electronics to last for thousands of years, but when we do, we'll have a battery that keeps going and going and going and going. End quote. A breed of dog thought to have gone extinct has been discovered in the highlands of New Guinea. But it's not just any dog. It's a singing dog. Simon Cowell's dreams have come true. Sort of. This breed of dog kind of howls more than sings with, you know, words and stuff, but its howls sound less like a typical dog whine and more like the songs of humpback whales. Have a listen. The breed was first studied in 1897, but now only two to three hundred remain in captivity, and none have been spotted in the wild since the 70s. Scientists got a tip-off about the Highland Wild Dog in 2012 and hypothesized that it could be what they knew as the New Guinea Singing Dog. In 2016 and 18, scientists went to collect photographs and DNA samples of the dogs, comparing it with those of the captive singing dogs. Quoting Vice, Dr. Heidi Parker, a staff scientist at the National Human Genome Research Institute, led an analysis of the genetic sequences between both breeds and discovered striking similarities. We found that New Guinea singing dogs and the Highland wild dogs have very similar genome sequences, much closer to each other than to any other canid known, Parker wrote in a news release published by the National Institutes of Health. In the Tree of Life, this makes them much more related to each other than modern breeds, such as German Shepherds or Basset Hounds, she added. Researchers say that due to inbreeding in captivity, and because both breeds were separated for several decades, the Singing Dog and the Highland Wild Dog have no identical genomes, but this does not mean that they are different breeds." End quote. In addition to hoping this finding will lead to insight on human vocalization and protections for this breed, scientists also think it may shed light on the history of dog domestication across the world. Quoting the New York Times, 
The New Guinea singing dogs are closely related to Australian dingoes and are also related to the Asian dogs that migrated with humans to Oceania 3,500 years ago or more. It may be that the singing dogs split off around then from a common ancestor that later gave rise to breeds like the Akita and Shiba Inu. But exactly when and where the dogs became feral and what is wild, what is domestic are still thorny questions which the new data will help to address." End quote. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding expectations, simplifying lives, and establishing legacies that last for generations. Leverage their exclusive network of experts to help achieve your personal and professional financial goals. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect to a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. As we enter the final weeks of summer, I thought I'd dive into the little-known history of a once-favorite summertime drink, Kool-Aid. Oh yeah. Kool-Aid was invented in 1927 by Edwin Perkins from Hastings, Nebraska. Something Hastings is very proud of. They have a Kool-Aid museum, an annual festival, and Kool-Aid is the state's official soft drink although it didn't make it to overall official beverage that, like many other states, is milk. Kool-Aid wasn't Perkins' first drink creation, however. Obsessed with Jell-O sold at his father's general store, Perkins experimented a lot with flavors and powdered creations and many other items that he sold door-to-door, including perfumes, products to help people stop smoking, and other household goods. His first biggest hit, which was actually still a bit of a flop, was a concentrated juice called Fruit Smack. It came in a number of flavors, each one in a glass bottle, intended to be used to make several pitchers worth of juice from just the one bottle of concentrate. But the glass bottles often leaked or broke in transport and suffered from other supply chain issues, leading Perkins to come up with the idea of turning the concentrate into a powder by dehydrating it and selling it in envelopes. And thus, Kool-Aid was born. Originally spelled A-D-E, but changed a few years later to be Kool-Aid A-I-D as we know it now. Kool-Aid originally came in six flavors, which does sound like a lot for the time until you compare it to the 20 currently on the market and 74 total it has released throughout its history. And originally it sold at just 10 cents an envelope. In two years, Kool-Aid was being sold all over the U.S. and not long after that, it expanded overseas. During the Great Depression... Perkins decided to cut the price in half, so Kool-Aid packets were just five cents each. And this was maybe partially inspired by being generous in a tough time for the nation, but was mostly a marketing strategy. Kool-Aid ran a robust ad campaign pointing out that with one five-cent packet, your family could make a whole pitcher of the sweet drink for the same price as just one bottle of Coca-Cola. And it's likely that this campaign is what turned Kool-Aid into a household name. According to advertising agency, sales went from just under $400,000 in 1931 to over a million and a half only five years later. But of course, one of the things that has made Kool-Aid so iconic for almost half of its lifetime is the Kool-Aid Man. Before the Kool-Aid Man, the company used a number of celebrities to help promote it, like the Monkees and Bugs Bunny who, yes, I am defining as a celebrity. 
There was also Pitcher Man, which was a drawing of a smiley face on a pitcher, inspired by a drawing that Perkins' son did in some frost on the window at some point, and that had been used for some time before being replaced by Bugs Bunny. But in 1975, they gave Pitcher Man some arms and legs and turned him into the larger-than-life anthropomorphic building-destroying mascot we all know today. He was created by the Gray Advertising Agency, and apparently the appearing by breaking through walls thing wasn't originally planned. A Kool-Aid executive told Mental Floss in 2017, quote, From what I've heard, someone on set said that Kool-Aid Man really had to make an entrance, and someone else, maybe a producer, suggested he come through the wall. Breakaway bricks were set up, and the character's fiberglass shell, the same material used for a Corvette Stingray, effectively became a wrecking ball. End quote. The commercials got more and more absurd throughout the 80s when the Kool-Aid Man became such a pop culture staple that he even had a limited Marvel Comics run and two different video games. You can play the Atari one on an emulator I'll put in the show notes, but beware, even by 80s video game standards, it's nothing to write home about. Now owned by Kraft Foods, Kool-Aid is approaching its centennial in 2027 and has not slowed down in the least. They're still coming out with new flavors, while a surprisingly large underground collector's economy of discontinued flavors rages on, and people continue to come up with more and more DIY uses, from the famous hair dye to flavored marshmallows and household cleaners. For the centennial, I'm sure we can expect a highly advertised, ultimately underwhelming celebration. But hey, maybe they'll at least bring back some of those discontinued flavors like Rockadile Red, Purplosaurus Rex, or Yabba Dabba Dewberry. We can only hope. Ending with some potentially, very potentially, awesome news. Australian researchers have discovered that honeybee venom can quickly kill aggressive breast cancer cells. This new research comes from the Harry Perkins Institute of Medical Research in Perth and was published in the journal Nature Precision Oncology. In addition to killing 100% of triple-negative breast cancer and HER2-enriched breast cancer cells within an hour, the specific concentration of the venom was also found to reduce the growth of tumors in mice when combined with existing chemotherapy drugs. The key element in the venom is called melitin. And Dr. Ciara Duffy, who led the research as a part of her PhD, told ABC, quote, What the melitin does is it actually enters the surface or the plasma membrane and forms holes or pores, and it just causes the cell to die, end quote. Duffy has found that honeybees from other parts of the world produced similar results, but that bumblebees did not. In addition to extracting the venom from honeybees they put to sleep, the scientists also experimented with creating a synthetic form of melitin, which had the same effects. And while scientists asked about the research agree it's an exciting development, Dr. Duffy herself is quick to caution that it is far from being considered any type of treatment or breakthrough. She said, quote, There's a long way to go in terms of how we would deliver it in the body, and, you know, looking at toxicities and maximum tolerated doses before it ever went further, end quote. And an interesting footnote here, apotherapy, or the use of bees for medicinal purposes, has been on the rise in recent years. It technically dates back to Hippocrates' prescription of bee stings to treat various maladies around 460 BCE, but took off again as a form of alternative medicine a few years ago. 
And when I say alternative medicine, I mean mostly people getting intentionally stung, just like Hippocrates, in the hopes that it would treat any manner of ailments. And just because medical scientists are now experimenting with the use of melitin for various treatments, even beyond just this one study, that doesn't mean it has actually been proven as safe or effective yet. Especially when it's not being extracted and prescribed in the lab. So please don't go try to get intentionally stung, or at least don't blame me if you do. A few weeks ago, I told you about the last blockbuster in the world in Bend, Oregon, which at the time was running a promotion with Airbnb, where you could actually rent out the store for a 90s-style sleepover. Well, I don't know if that was related to this as some sort of promotion, but it turns out there's a new documentary coming out about that blockbuster called The Last Blockbuster. It tells the story of how that particular store has lasted this long, what it's done to keep going, and zooms out larger to the story of Blockbuster's demise, and how it arguably messed up by not buying Netflix when it was given the opportunity to. Although had that happened, we may not have amazing shows like Orange is the New Black and Stranger Things in our world, so maybe it was for the best. The documentary features interviews with celebrities like Kevin Smith and Adam Brody, as well as what seems to be the former CFO of Blockbuster, who has a great line in the trailer saying he doesn't miss movie rentals at all. Who would? The only sad news is that it's not debuting until December 15th, and it looks like it'll just be available to rent or buy on demand, not hosted on any existing streaming platform, which I guess makes sense for a movie about Blockbuster, if we're being honest. Link to the trailer in the show notes. And that is it for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I am off to go bid on some Rockadile Red Kool-Aid. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.